the night has come, when the night has come and the land is dark, and the moon is the only light, and the moon is the only light, and the moon is the only light, we will see. When the It's Marnita from Marnita's Together, Marnita, Marnita's Together from Marnita's Table, and I'm not very together clearly today. Um, as you know, we bring people together across race, class, culture, and other means of self-identity to find common ground on major public policy issues. And there can be no greater public policy issue right now than stopping and throwing off the shackles of state-sponsored violence against black and brown bodies. Um, I think about this a lot. I have a 26 year old black child, but I'm a 58 year old black woman who was born. Um, and my body was evidence of a felony until I was six years old. Many of the laws that we have in our country were explicitly designed to limit and harm black and brown people. And it's time for us to stand up, recognize that. And instead of reforming a system, we need to create wholesale, a new system of wealth, health, and well-being in our communities that includes and lifts up not just white individuals in our country, but all of us, and explicitly Black people and Indigenous people who were left outside of the law and intentionally denied opportunities. So anyway, I'm Marnita. Welcome to Weather Together. We've been do doing community cast now for about three months since we went under for COVID. I am super excited about our guest today. Um, we're starting with Carlo. Um, and Carlo wrote an amazing speech and has been an amazing part of the movement, the uprising to change the system out of Los Angeles, California. Um, and all of us are going to do the same thing. And, and, and even our producers, we make, we, we jokingly say, you know, it's like skinny dipping. Everybody has to get naked. Um, nobody is allowed to just get up and talk. Like if, so all of us, if even our producers, Andrew and Lauren, who are actually show producers, actually share their opinions. They are part of the community. Um, and this is what it looks like to actively uh, put people at the table. And we have Amina Lovey um, calling in um, on, on today, Zoom, is part of the Marnita's Table team. Um, spends part of her year in Puerto Vallarta and part of it in Chicago, um, straight out of North originally. And so our conversation today, and it's going to be this for a while, is safer. And it's about reimagining what it means to be healthier in our bodies and in our minds and in our just in our beings to be free of state-sponsored violence against Black and Brown people. So we always open the show the same way. And today's question is, do you have one thing that makes you feel safe in your own community? What is it? And I'm going to throw it first to Carlo. Carlo, spend some time. Like, tell us who you are and some things about that, and then throw it to whoever you'd like to hear the question from next, okay? Okay. Uh, as Marnita said, my name is Carlo, Carlo Kim. Uh, I am 14 years old. Uh, I grew up, I'm born and raised in Northridge. Uh, I have been going to protests. Uh, since they've really started for three weeks every day of the week. Um, I've been tear gassed at one. I helped organize another one. I've given a couple speeches uh, and that's that. Uh, on the question, do you have one thing that makes you feel very safe in your own community and what is it? Uh, well, I think generically speaking, uh, my family has always made me feel very safe. Uh, I, I know that they would you know, protect me to their deaths. 
uh, and I would protect my I would protect them to theirs. Uh, but uh, I also think that uh, there's certain objects such as my books. I, I've I've been getting into reading uh, very very intensely over the last year, over the last couple of years. Um, and I, I think just getting into reading is it's um, almost it's like entering into a new world. Uh, where you can really just hone your intellect, your knowledge on certain issues. It's, and I, I think that that like it almost brings me out of you know all all the all the crap going on in the world, all the systemic oppression, as you said. Uh, and you know it, it's it's also a bit of know thy enemy uh, there. You know, uh, just reading about about the history of our nation and such. Um, so pass it on. Correct. Yeah, Kim is here now too. Kim Ellison is with us. So you might want to pass it to Kim. All right, Kim, what do you have to say? Hello, just getting here. Um, so, um, so thank you. And you're uh, running for office. So tell a little bit about yourself and then one thing that makes you feel safe in your own community is just how we're opening. Sure, okay, perfect. I'm Kim Ellison, um, current chair of the Minneapolis School Board and I am up for re-election. I'm running for office to um, stay on the school board. Um, and so that's who I am. I, this is my ninth year um, on the board. Um, and so that's a little bit about me. Uh, what, one thing that makes me feel very safe in my own community would be my children, my family. Um, and, but I think that it, it extends further than just you know the children I gave birth to. Um, students that I've worked with in the schools as well. Um, so the young people make me feel safe in my community. Um, and then what was the next question? Sorry. I'm just going to throw it just so you have Lauren, Andrew, and Amina, or me to throw it to, any one of us. Okay, I will um, show, throw it to Marnita. Why, thank you. Well, I'm Marnita, and you know, I've been really thinking about what makes me feel safe in my community. And every week, you know, we've been doing a lot of these shows, and one of the things that's been making me feel safer in my community is actually being able to call out, out my white neighbors on their racism um, and actually being able to say, that's not okay, that's not working for me. Um, it actually made me feel pretty safe when the Boogaloo boys were putting out that um, they were gonna come into our neighborhood. They, there was actually explicit tweets saying they were coming into Kenwood um, because it was an upper middle class liberal neighborhood um, and largely white that they were gonna come and start burning it down. And so I was walking the neighborhoods on the first couple nights of the uprising and telling my white neighbors like, no, that's not happening. That's not, that's not what we're about. And I was shocked at how many of my white neighbors were actually informed and were like standing in solidarity. And it was sort of surprising, but I actually felt a need to go tell them that that was happening and to demand that they stop, like to say, you know, like grow up, like it's now time to get over this idea that you had nothing to do with this racism and that you have something that you need to do to cure it. And that's making me feel safer to tell people what I need um, and to feel like for the first time, and, I, and I'm 58, this is the first time I've, for as many years as our people have been fighting, I'm starting to see some light. So I'm gonna throw it to Amina now. Hey guys, I'm Amina. I'm a part of Marnia's table. Um, I'm currently in the South Side of Chicago. Um, and one thing that makes me feel safe in my own community is the people in my community, the young people in my community. Um, I feel like when you build 
relationships, when you are present in your community, when you um, cultivate your own idea of what community is, um, it makes you feel safer. So that's something that um, I'm very protective of, um, of, of introducing myself, of creating initiatives within the community that we don't have already, because um, it makes not only myself feel safer, but my neighbors feel safe as well. And I'm gonna pass it on to Lauren. Hi everyone, I am and one of the producers of this show, but also training manager at Marnita's Table. Um, and last week I said my neighbors, and while I still think it's my neighbors, I've been thinking a little bit about how whenever I go into a new community, whether I'm traveling or, you know, visiting family, um, I always have to know the lay of the land. I always have to find businesses, uh, specifically businesses where I know that if anything happened, I would most likely be safe there. Um, and in a lot of ways, I don't even know if, if I realize that that's what I've been doing. Um, my parents taught me very early on that whenever you go into a new community, um, find where uh, the Black churches are, find where the Black businesses are. Um, and I guess that's just been always a part of what I've done to find safety, not only in my own community, but in any community that I go in. Um, so I will pass it to Andrew. Awesome. Thank you, Lauren, for sharing that. Um, and last week I talked about um, what makes me feel safe with food and sitting down with a family dinner or going out to eat and being surrounded by the community. And um, carrying off what Desra Lynn shared last week about um, having a shared language and having um, a shared understanding that you don't know everything. So listening to the language and the intent behind that. Um, uh, really creates a safe space um, that I've found lately for me. And I've noticed, um, like Marnita mentioned, that people such as myself uh, who have experienced incredible amounts of white privilege are starting to understand that uh, a lot more frequently right now. And, and, and this is a moment where I love to, to make a little, so Andrew and, Andrew and Declan are our partners. And we met them in December, right after our last podcast producer um, had to quit and moved away. And uh, as part of that, like, and I was kind of stricken. And then the next day, somebody on our board, Phil Shao, introduced us to Andrew and Declan. And they have done over 250 episodes of The Back Pocket. You should have Kim on from the school board, by the way. And, and we, but we tease them a lot. Like, we tease them for being um, white guy podcasting comics, right? Like, there's a thing about, like, how many white guys are comics and have podcasts? Um, and... So last week when we were producing, we have a new employee who's actually been coming to the table since she was nine, Nandi. And it turned out Nandi knew all about the back pocket and had been low key following them and coming and going like, hmm, your shows are awfully white. Hmm, why are you only using white voices? And so she was sort of pleased last week when um, she found out that we'd been working with them for three months and they are now producing our podcast. And I wanna say something very cool about it is that they are lifting up voices and um, creating a space where people who would normally not have a podcast platform will have one, particularly for voices of color. And so they're partnering with us on this. And so, you know, we have this new conception at Marnita's Table, we're calling it Do Forward, D-U-E Forward. And it's it gets us out of the conversation of what reparations are and what who didn't do what. I'm interested in what I'm do forward. I'm do a safe community. I am do um, 
by just virtue of me being human and walking. I, I deserve clean air and clean water and I shouldn't have to be wealthy or super smart to have basic things, right? Um, and so we, we are working on this safer um, conversation and we're either putting everybody in safer or do forward. If you're a business, if you're an individual, what do you owe forward in your community? And I think as a black woman, I've always had an obligation. I've always known that I had an, a community obligation, not just an obligation for my own wealth. Um, so um, just so you know, Weather Together is uh, open to the public and it's, it's a public recorded podcast episode. And we are live right now, if you're okay with it, on Facebook Live. So say hi out there to Facebook Live, um, everybody. And we're gonna go to some more questions. Oh, today, and um, Kim has it. Uh, Kim is here, and Carlo are here, but Tara Cole will be joining us in a little while, and I'm sure you know Tara, Kim, um, or I, I'm sure you know Tara's family, if not Tara herself, um, and Desra Lynn, her younger sister, was on last week, Andrew. Um, so, we're going to throw it first to Carlo, because I love when we lift up, and I know Kim is, because of your position on the school board, we're always about lifting up voices of young people. So any of the five questions, Carlo, choose one, answer it at length, let's have a conversation. And you just throw it to the next person and they can answer it, or they can choose another question and throw it to somebody else. And now we're just at the dinner table having a conversation. Um, I'd like to answer question five. Is it important for all of us to address state-sponsored violence against black and brown people? Um, well, I think of course, I think we can all unanimously agree that it is important. Uh, and it's, it's, even if you're not a black and brown or black or brown person, or even a person of color, uh, even if you're not Asian, if you're not, uh, if you're not Native American, if you're just a Euro American, uh, if you're the, the, the epitome of the vast majority of our presidents, if that's who you are, you should also be addressing the state-sponsored violence against black and brown people. Um, for, for one thing, uh, even if it doesn't affect you negatively, your, your grandfather's grandfather uh, may not have owned slaves, uh, but he may well have gotten a job because a black man of his intelligence or higher of his intelligence was in chains. Uh, the reason that you are in the position you are is because of slavery and it is because of racism. Uh, and if you don't address that, it's not only antipathetic, it is racist, it is ignorant, and it is violent. Um, and I, I think that goes for all people. Uh, and even disregarding all the logic of that argument, you know, watch the video, watch the eight minute and 40 second video of George Floyd being murdered on the street by a police officer and tell me you don't need to address that. We all have to work together on this planet because there's only one of it. Thank you. Um, Andrew. Yes, thank you, Carlo. And I'd like to ask you a question quick. What, um, from being 14 years old, what have you found been the most educational aspect um, since you've been saying you've been reading a little bit and trying to uh, understand the quote unquote enemy? Um, what have you found has been, you know, a, a helpful piece with the education aspect? Um, specific book, are you asking? Or... Yeah, that would be awesome, of course. Um, well, I think Settlers by Jay Saki is a very interesting book. Uh, Settlers, the myth of the white proletariat. It explains, as I just referenced, the idea that um, all, all, 
all white people, whether they were slave owners, whether they were rich, whether they were aristocrats, whether they were nobility, uh, etc., all white people were uh, were directly were get, got directly positive results from slavery and from exploitation of minorities. And it doesn't just focus on black and brown people; it goes through Asian Americans, Native Americans, uh, their slaughter, their enslavement, their exploitation. Uh, I found that work very interesting, uh, and I recommend people read it. Awesome. Thank you, Carlo. And to uh, kind of further that, um, a book that I've been reading um, that one of my aunts recommended, um, Born a Crime by Trevor, Trevor Noah, um, where he was born in, uh, in South Africa during the apartheid. And um, one thing that he was describing was, uh, you know, he doesn't have a fear of, of um, or he, he has a fear of regret. And that is it. It's, um, centered around not taking action, not, not sitting on your hands. And um, these community casts have kind of been a little bit of a gateway, a little bit of igniting the flame internally for me to, um, you know, uh, address state-sponsored violence through my podcast and through sitting into these conversations. Um, so I'd like to pass it to Kim, please. Thank you. Um... I love how there's an explanation point at the end of this question, as opposed to- a question. It's not really a question, is it? No, it is not really a question. You know how I talk. I'm a very enthusiastic person. Right? No, no, no. And, and, and there should be an explanation point because yes, it is very important. Um, and we all need to do what we can um, to address state-sponsored violence, especially against black and brown people. Um, what are systems of oppression that we need to, um, address or that we need to bring down and then how can we do that in um in our way um where we are as the um chair of the board i, I was opening up the board meeting um shortly after um mr floyd was was murdered and said we're going to take a moment of silence um in memory of george floyd and i said during that time i want you to reflect on what you have done to, um, to not um, address white people murdering uh, Mr. Floyd and other black and brown men that have happened. Um, what in your silence or in your inaction, because we can all say we can all do something. And so yes, it is important for us all to address um, state sponsored in our way and we, and we all can. Um, I'm going to pass this to um, Lauren. Thank you, Kim. Um, I'm really feeling number five, too. Um, I feel like if you don't address it, it this reminds me a lot of uh, the whole I don't see color. Um, so if you don't address it, you're just ignoring people's lives. You're ignoring their histories. Um, you're ignoring their experiences. Um, and I think that it's not just addressing policing. That's one of the things that we've been talking about a lot um, in our organization is that it, being on these calls and listening to young people um they're addressing it they're addressing it all across the country even in communities where we used to 
hearing people address uh, these things because they're not very diverse communities. Um, but the young people are really making it known that they have thoughts, they have opinions, they have solutions, they have ideas. Um, and so I think that that's where we start. That's my personal opinion. Um, and I will pass it to Amina. Hey, Lauren, thank you. I'm going to move on from question five as, as important the question is and move to um, question four. Do you have a role in making your community safe? If yes, do you know what your role is? Um, I think in any indigenous and or um, person of color and even Eurocentric um, cultures, community is a safe haven um, for your identity, for um, how you were brought up, um, and also the notion and the proverb, the African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. And I, I still continue to um, believe in that value and walk in that value um, as I was um, when I was younger and having a background in youth development and higher education and working in the schools. Um, it's my natural um, uh, role to make sure that I take some part in what where I live and invest in where I live, not only invest in money wise and property wise, um, but the young people that also are living in the community, the elders that are also living in the community, and the ground and the spaces that we um, are being nourished in and are walking in. And so my role specifically um, is to always um, cultivate more opportunities that we might not have at the moment or opportunities that um, may be there but they're not elevated or they might not have a certain person to take on that responsibility so um, I've always I've always felt like um, that is a safe haven when you've created resources and or are implementing resources and are cultivating resources in your community that brings so much of power that brings that brings love that brings not only safety but also respect because you also have people in the community that have been here for 60 70 years and when you when they see that you are investing when they see that you are creating things it gives them a a, a fresh breath air of like ha somebody else is leading where we're just not leaving our community um as a desert so um that is my role i continue to move that role i have a partner um and i that are creating um beautiful opportunities here in chicago um and our our neighborhood to make sure that the young people um, and the elders are having opportunities to also be outside and engage, um, but to um, learn and love from one another. So I'll pass this on to um, Marnita um, and any question you might have. Well, you know, I mean, it's funny because I actually think, I, you know how I always just kind of go my way. So one piece of reading, if you haven't read it yet, Carlo, I recommend White Rage. If you haven't read this book, read it. It's actually, it's the number one book I'm recommending to, um, well, it's really hard reading no matter who you are, no matter what color you are, because um, it's not told in, in a story form. It's not like, oh, I get to read the story of one slave who overcame and it's literally just 
every like just the ways that laws were written and how you know how the overlapping laws and and even like with things that we we may not have been aware of you know like in 20 in 1920 like something like 85 percent of revenue in the state of north carolina was from from black prisoners who were being leased back to the state and that they were making it illegal for blacks to migrate to the north for better paying jobs like like the things that they did they literally stopped the trains from running um you know uh, my ex-husband used to always say elijah's dad used to say you know if we were really dumb they wouldn't have outlawed reading you know to realize that when when some of these laws were written um they were designed like if you signed a sharecropper agreement and you signed it with something more than an X. It was evidence that you were literate and you could be put in jail. You know, that if you actually saw that they, in the contract um, said that you were supposed to give them 110% of your crop back, which isn't mathematically possible. You could be jailed for knowing that information. You know, so I get really offended. Um, and, and for, you know, I, I tell my story all the time. I was adopted by a white, rural, conservative, um, Irish and German Catholic family. I grew up in a town that had the largest population of Ku Klux Klan west of the Mississippi. Um, I was the only black person in that town. I had a dog named Eric who was a Norwegian Elkhound German Shepherd Collie that was actually was at my side at all times because um, they burnt crosses in our yards and things and he was there for my protection. He went everywhere with me. Um, and he was a trained, basically, guard dog for me as a child. Um, by the way, looks just like Taz and Teo, for those of you who know my current dogs. Um, they are ghosts of, of, of Eric, um, which my mother named Eric because he was Norwegian elk hound. Anyway, um, but that my role in the community um, in helping to make it safe, and as you were saying that, I was almost starting to cry, Amina, in many ways, my role in the community to make it safe has been to be a safe haven, right? So you you were in my home when you were 13 and now are working for me. Lauren was in my home when she was 19. Nandi was in my home when she was nine, right? Like um, to actually be a space where young people can grow. I remember you explaining once about my husband, if you don't know him, is a guy named Carl Goldstein. He's an my first date with him, I said, I'm a militant, pissed off black woman. I was kind of hoping I'd scare him. He calmly said, I'm a pinko commie Jew. We have a long history of alliances. Um, and we've been together 20 years now. But that, that, you know, so often I've been exploited by white men or people who took things from me. And both you, Amina and Nandi, both young people who've been in my, in my home, came to me at some point and said, you remember sitting by Carl in my living room and learning about China and how he traveled to China when he was young and what he did and what it meant to me that you felt safe as a young black girl in my home because we are often exploited and we often don't feel safe. And so um, I've been relating that to my experience in the dog park recently, realizing that when the police were called on me and they jumped out of their cars with hands on weapons and thankfully they did not kill me, but imagine if you can take out those spots of, you know, if you, like instead of growing 20 more Marnita's tables where more people can grow and thrive and flourish who aren't treated as programs. I remember one young person came to the table and said, I wasn't treated 
as a problem to solve or a challenge to manage. I was, I was treated as a teenager who had an important voice and ideas, and I took it from there. So what's my, my, my job in the community to make it safe? To be good soil so all the seeds in the community can grow. And I'm now gonna throw it to Kim to choose another question. Or follow on that thought if you want. Hey, um, you see, do you know what you need to feel safe in your community? Um, I know what makes me feel safe in my community. And like I said, it's, um, it's, it's young people really, um, that make me feel safe and the ideas that they have, um, and, and the actions that they're taking. So what are some ideas you've been hearing? I'd love to hear, like, are, are you hearing like new novel ideas that you would like to lift up? Because I want to move from just kind of like they're inspiring us, but like, what are you hearing? Like, Carlo's speech blew me away because it was so on point and it gave me new ideas. So what ideas should we be paying attention to, Kim? Well, we, first of all, we need to be paying attention. Um, the ideas I'm hearing from students are not new ideas. They've been telling us for years. Um, in um, different ways or very straightforward ways. Um, for instance, at, at the school board, we just um, canceled our contract with the Minneapolis Police Department. Students have been telling us that for years. Um, we don't feel safe with armed, uniformed officers in our schools. We need, you need to cancel that contract. You need to get rid of them. Um, other things that they're telling us is we, we need to learn more about the history of our people. Um, where did we come from? What are the, some of the struggles we've overcome? We don't do that in our schools. We haven't done that in our schools. And I remember very vividly students coming and saying, I do not see myself reflected in your history classes, in your world history classes, in your US history classes. I know um, that people who look like me have played a role but I don't, I am not learning that in, in class. So what did we do? We started ethnic studies courses um, and then we offered as an elective course. It's a history course. It's a social studies credit. Um, and so that's frustrating to me, but students know and that they should be hearing about um, different cultures in a history class and they, they verbalize that. Um, so there's a number of things that, we often say, okay, we, we must know better because we're older. It's not true. Um, and they're asking us, they're saying, right now, it's not safe to be um, in community, in, in spaces. We would like some more mental health supports in our schools. Um, yes, let's do that. That's important. We they're not going to feel safe learning about geometry if they're not safe in terms of who they are um, and just being in this space. And so let's provide mental health supports for our students. So those are just some of the things I'm hearing. Um, and I'm going to pass it to, have we heard from Andrew? Yes, um, I actually have a question for Carlo. Um, I was, you're like a dog with a bone, Andrew. I love that. <laughs> I always bring one guest on for Andrew, where Andrew goes, okay, I'm just going to ask this person. Like every time I get the mic, 
I'm going to, I love that. Okay. Yes. Thank you. um, Carla, what was it like being at the protests? Um, I'm just curious from like your perspective, what were you feeling? And then now you're a few days or maybe a week removed from being at um, some of the protests. What are the feelings since then? Um, I, the first protest I went to uh, wasn't much of a protest. I, don't, I wouldn't call it a protest. It was certainly more of a rebellion. Uh, it was certainly angry people uh, doing possibly irrational uh, things. Uh, you know, we walked down the street in Hollywood, in downtown, uh, and every window that wasn't broken was in the process of having a brick thrown through it. Uh, and there were fireworks being fired at the police. The police responded with rubber bullets. It was uh, very euphoric. Uh, as time went on, we got to more regular protests. Um, but And uh, I, it, I kind of cooled down, and I become... I became very um, nonchalant about the whole situation, really. Uh, it almost seemed like I'd done this a million times before. Um, but the, the third day, I think, the third or fourth day, uh, we were in a Santa Monica protest uh, in which I was tear gassed. Uh, I already said this, and I, I don't want, really want to hammer that in. Uh, I, people had much worse injuries, uh, even, even my family members. Uh, got the tear gas much worse, uh, and other people were shot by rubber bullets, other people were hit by batons, thrown to the ground, pepper sprayed, uh, all vile, heinous acts committed by the police against peaceful protesters, because all we were doing was kneeling, uh, kneeling, and many people uh, were screaming, this is a peaceful protest, uh, over and over again, and, uh, with the intent uh, to try and calm the police down and try and rally the people around the idea that we're, we're not we're not fighting uh, and try to rally people watching from the news screen that were uh, around the idea that we were not struggling against the police we were struggling against injustice peacefully and the police responded by committing these aforementioned acts um, and that did not work and it continues to not work and we continue to hear people screaming this is a peaceful protest we continue to hear people screaming, we should get out of the streets uh, because the police, because we're instigating the police, as if the police coming in with 25 police cruisers, uh, guns, pointing paintball, modified paintball weapons, modified armored vehicles, SWAT vans that look exactly like tanks, coming into a peaceful protest of not, not more than 50 people and shooting at us. And we're the ones who are instigating. I, as time has gone on, I've become more infuriated by this idea that we should be the ones who are, who should be peaceful. We should not be taking the high ground. They have been taking the high ground while they're fucking fighting, while they're trying to kill us, while they are killing us, while they're shooting at us, as I said, while they're beating us in the streets. They've enslaved us, exploited us, slaughtered us for 400 years. We we are not at peace. Stop acting like it. This is not a peaceful protest because we are not at peace. They do not want us to be at peace. They have been struggling against us for 400 years. I think it's about time to stop it. And I don't think that can happen with, by saying, screaming, this is a peaceful protest. I think we have to take a firm stand against the police. I'm not calling for a riot or anything of the sort. What I think we should do is we should make it clear to the police officers that this is not, this is not a peaceful protest because you are not making a, a peaceful protest. If you wanted this to be a peaceful protest, 
you would allow us to protest. And that's the feeling I'm getting throughout the throughout my time protesting. That's okay. incredible, Carl. Else that's really stupid right now, Andrew. Like I'm like, okay, okay. So first of all, I just have to say some things. So that was a 14 year old speaking. I'm feeling better about the future, first of all. <laughs> I think we could use a few more leaders like this, Kim. Don't you think? <laughs> um, you know, but it's also, I, I don't know, my, my head just exploded. I need somebody else to, Kim, I saw your brain going while, <laughs> while Carlo was, so go. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. I, I often hear us talk about um, students being the future leader. They're leading right now. Yes. Um, and Carlo is a prime example of that. And, and all of our students that were out on the streets, um, prime example of the leadership. We just need to get behind them um, and let them lead. Yeah, but I, just some of those, the, I, Andrew, you actually had a question for Carlo as a follow-up and I, I kind of jumped on it. What was that question you had? Yeah, I was gonna ask, um, now, you're in this position where I mean you're you're oozing with confidence and I, I appreciate your honesty and transparency sharing those things uh, and I'm curious the people around you with a similar age ranges are they holding similar spaces to what we are doing kind of right now what are you seeing people uh, like in your age range um, um, acting out like uh, in, right now um well I I I for the first Six years of my life, I went to public school. I went to public school for the opening of middle school, the opening months, and I had some problems. So I moved on to private school since then. Uh, and I've been in private school for quite a while. So my friends are private schoolers. So this is coming from private schoolers, just to be clear, uh, because I don't know if that represents the majority opinion. But um, after I was tear gassed, I recounted this uh, to my friends, uh, 10 or so of them. Uh, 10, 15, and uh, they they uh, called me disgusting uh, for joining the riots. Um, so so generally, I, I do not think that, that they are too supportive. But again, these are private schoolers. Um, I, I don't even know, you know, some of them are also all lives matter people. So some of them don't, you know, are, take issue with the idea that black lives matter. Um, so so I, I, I wouldn't really know. I've seen some student organizers uh, and as I said previously, I, I helped organize a protest with some students uh, uh, in Culver City, uh, and I gave a speech there. Um, and, and they were certainly they were certainly in favor of the protest, or else they wouldn't have organized it. Um, but but we I don't I think as a general problem, and it's not just for kids, is that uh, Black Lives Matter is not a, is not very well united. Uh, and of course, Black Lives Matter as an organization has a has a plan uh, for policies that they want to implement and they have leaders uh, uh, local and municipal and national uh, they have these leaders but we don't know their names uh, or at least I don't know their names uh, my friends don't know their names uh, we don't know the policies they're putting forth uh, and that's a problem I think that it's not just kids I think we need one one entity uh, be that a party be that a union etc that we can all unite behind and say, this is the organization that's going to get things done because we need something, we need somebody, somebody, we need somebody or something to negotiate with the government and negotiate with the police on an equal level because they are subordinate to us. Let's not forget that. We should not be negotiating with the police as if we're preying on their alms, all right? We pay for them and they should understand that and they should understand that with a strong voice that can tell them that. 
like so one carla um i have to tell you um i want to have you step in closer to safer and to what we're doing because i actually think we may be that one organization even though we're tiny we are mighty um and we are the crossroads in the intersection of public and private and individual and organizational and we actually need somebody who isn't um who doesn't have specific skin in the game if that makes sense like we're not doing it for our like what we're doing it for is for a community itself to identify what it wants to do. Like you need some neutral space where people can come together and lay it out to come up with something. And for too long, it's either like, you know, it's basically dominant culture folk who come into a room um, and they already have a decision in mind, right? And then they make, they basically get some feedback and we do things bottom up. So I have a couple questions to ask you before we throw it back to Kim. And I wanna hear what Lauren's thinking because Lauren has that look on her face and so does Andrew. I always know when they're, when we're having our minds blow up. So one, I want you, I'm gonna give you our list. You can be a, a co-host, a guest or anything you want. I think your voice is very needed and very clear. Um, so we are willing to pay you at Marnita's Table to be one of our co-hosts. And we'd like to have you regularly. Don't y'all agree? I didn't check with my other producers on this because I knew they were gonna say yes. I don't even have to check on that one. Um, okay. um, um, so yay, we love you. Um, but also, what are you thinking about this? Like, I, I really do think what Kim said is it's not, it's not they're going to lead us, they are leading us. Um, so how do we get out of the way? How do we lift up these voices to make sure that they're really heard? Because I actually haven't heard Carlos, a voice like Carlos, um, unless I intentionally go find that voice, um, you know, that's part of your job back pocket as well is how do we lift up voices? You know, like, so how do we use a Carlo, not extract from him, but understand that a Carlo might have access to other voices. Um, so to make sure that we're constantly lifting up authentic voices in and with community. Um, and I had to find another community. I used to joke, I, you know, I was adopted and I'd say, you know, I don't really have biological family i just have logical family you know and so how good are friends if they're telling you it's disgusting that you're standing up for your human and civil rights you know like that must make you feel very very isolated um i don't even know where i am in the conversation so i'm gonna throw it um to lauren and just ask whatever you want whatever you're feeling um i'm feeling like we just got into conversation mode and i just have been talking for a while and i'm kind of you know me i'm kind of feeling the same way um just listening to what you were saying, Carlo, well, A, like Marnita said, I haven't really heard, and maybe, and I don't know why, but I, I haven't really heard young people um, who, have, who have been opposed to the movement building that's happening right now. And so I needed to hear that just to know, like, there still is work to be done. Um, but also, as you were talking, I was like, wow, I've heard this before. And I, and part of me feels like we're in this weird time loop. Um, and strangely enough, I feel like there was a, a, a gap where I don't, I don't think that I was told these stories of what happened um, during civil rights, what happened during Jim Crow, because elders wanted to protect my ears. Uh, they said, oh, that was a bad time. You don't, you don't need to concern yourself with those things. Um, and I think that my fear uh, is that if, if we don't make sure that, 
younger people know exactly what's going out on on the streets like if, if people don't know the violence that you're experiencing then once again we'll just find ourselves in the same position because we wanted to shield um those little innocent ears from what's actually happening so i i'm really thankful for you coming on and sharing the good and the bad of what your experience has been um and then in response to something that that kim was talking about just i'm seeing all the students at different schools sending letters to their administration you know demanding more educators of color demanding more representation in their classes um and knowing when I was a kid, I didn't feel like in ways my oppression was an option. Like I, I didn't know that we could combat those things or that we had any type of um, power in that situation. And so I loved Carla, what you said, like they work for us. This, this is very true. Um, and I, I want everybody to be thinking about, thinking about all of this with that lens. So thank you. I'm just, I'm, I'm here for you. Carla for president, I said it in the chat. Um, but yeah, I'm down. Like I'm ready. <laughs> well, I was actually looking for um, a post um, that Elijah wrote because you know another one, uh, another one of our young people who's always schooling me, and I'm trying to find it because like here I'm gonna go off share screen because I actually want to read it because I think it will really um, resonate with both Carlo and others. Just a second, where is it? I'm super excited about this one. Um, so keep talking while I find it. Like find another question or Kim, tell us like besides that, like um, I'm sure you're getting all sorts of feedback right now from people saying, well, oh my God, crime will go up or, you know, I'm witnessing things that I think is white supremacist um, trying to make the crime wave spike to make white people be afraid of change. Like, I don't know if other people are experiencing that kind of thing. Let's talk about that for a minute. You know, there's never been a time when there's been an uprising when white violence didn't actually immediately follow the uh, uprising. And then suddenly it was our job, whether it was a civil war or something else, it was our job to be patient and wait because white people were feeling uncomfortable with our anger. Um, you know, and, and by the way, I've been saying this, Notice they had to wear face masks for six weeks and they were at the Capitol with guns whining about having to wear face masks. We were enslaved for 400, like 400 years and then, you know, another 50 years of Jim Crow and, you know, black code laws. But hey, I have to wear a face mask. I need my heavy weaponry, you know, like, like, so talk about that for a second while I find this because I want to find this quote. But I think what, what occurred to me was during the, the um, peaceful protests, um, that the police then escalated. Um, and I, I watched specifically the protest outside of third precinct. Then the police said, you know, you cannot do that here. We're going to push you back. Then started firing tear gas, then, you know, and rubber bullets. Then they're basically in the target parking lot, um, getting tear gas. And I said, oh, let's run to target and buy some milk so that we can um, make ourselves feel not this pain. And Target said, yeah, you can't come in here. Um, and then they were like, but, but we have to. So then they broke in and, and then, then lawlessness happened. Um, and I think that there, there were others who then jumped on and, and let's make this peaceful protest look bad. Um, so that we're no longer talking about 
the injustices that black and brown people have been um, putting up with for 400, 500 years. Um, let's talk about the fact that Target got robbed um, and that that was an injustice, like bearing the face mask was an injustice. Yes, they, they find these little reasons um, to make it seem way larger than it needs to be, than, than it is, than, than anything historically that has happened to black and brown people. Historically, that is still happening to black and brown people. Um, you know, I believe George Floyd would not be dead today, even if he had passed a counterfeit $20 bill and he was white. Um, and so these things are still happening. We are still being oppressed. Systems are still oppressing us, like students having to say, I need to see myself reflected not just in your curriculum, but in the people who are teaching it to me. Um, those are all things that, you know, I, I think of and how do we make that right um, so that we can move forward into a just society. So those are just yeah. So I wanted to share two posts that um, my 26-year-old son uh, wrote, and I know your son, Jeremiah Ellison, is a city council. Like, so you you are raising a leader as well, um, and many leaders. I know you have five children, and I love Kim. <laughs> you have three? Oh, four, four. Four children. I added a magical one. Why not? Why not? Yes. You know how that is. Like, I added a magic. Anyway. Um, so these are two posts that Elijah wrote, but I wanted to share them. One was right after the uprisings in Minneapolis. And then the first one that said, acknowledge that white supremacists, both local and imported, both in and out of the police force, are agitating, inciting, and actively destroying buildings, etc., and then assuming any fire or tag or destroyed building you see was done by protesters is naive, racist, and definitely false. Acknowledge that real people, yes, working class, black and brown people involved in the uprising are involved in more than just peaceful protest and that their reclamation of corporate board hoarded goods and land isn't opportunist or the result of being tricked by outside agitators and agents provocateur. The idea of an uprising be, would be pretty, neat, clean, and peaceful, and involve an unbroken eternal respect of property rights is not reasonable or based on anything resembling a desire for change or an understanding that the status quo is untenable. Um, you must acknowledge, you can and must acknowledge both of these things to understand what's happening in Minneapolis and the country right now. Um, and then he later edited it to say, I'd like to add an addendum that over the course of days, people have flooded in, things have escalated, and there are lots of out-of-towners on the streets who are just opportunists now. None of that means the police or the National Guard are your friends at suddenly. It is still black and brown working class people, along with white allies, friends and neighbors, who are protecting, cleaning up, and feeding their neighborhoods. You can denounce senseless and community-aimed violence without denouncing the uprising, which goes far beyond some Ideal, idealized peaceful protest. Looting a target and burning down POC businesses are not the same. Pay attention, don't fall to dogmatism because it's easy and lazy. Um, what do you think of that, Carlo? I, well, I, I certainly agree with the idea um, that 
that, that objectively speaking, uh, no matter what side of the spectrum you are on, uh, whether you're liberal or not, the United States claims to have a social contract. Uh, that, you know, uh, and that goes all the way back to John Locke uh, and, you know, more closer to the United States. It goes back to Thomas Paine. Uh, and we've always claimed to have a social contract. And that's the reason we had a revolution in the first place, because we claim that the king, King George V, was violating the social contract. We have a social contract. Um, but, we've cons but instead of the social contract we want, which is where the United States guarantees our life, liberty, love, and the pursuit of happiness, etc., we have been consistently proven that the United States will not guarantee our life, liberty, love, or the pursuit of happiness, and that it will exploit us, uh, it will do whatever it can to ride every dollar and every penny it can out of us. It will, it will enslave, it will slaughter, so long as it increases the power of the nation, and so long as it increases the power of the rich. Um, so when, we're, when we've been proven that, and we've, been, and we've consistently seen this idea come up for 400 years, uh, I, it's the only crime we could possibly commit is spend one second in silence. The idea that we're uprising, that we're rising up, and we're committing these crimes is, is, only, is only so true as long as these crimes are upheld by some true form of law, but they are not. We have to hold our government accountable for their actions. Uh, and I totally agree with that idea. Um, and I also agree that um, looting small businesses, I can't not condone that. Um, and I, I don't think that the people who are looting small businesses, if they thought about it rationally, they would, they would condone that. I think they're just angry uh, and they want to let out their anger. And as I said, there's a social contract that's been broken. So they see no reason to trust that the government will make things better. They see no reason to trust that the government will stop police brutality, will uh, at all mitigate the COVID-19 crisis. And, you know, they failed that thus far. They see no reason to trust the government. So they commit these, these acts. Uh, but Target, hmm, I, I can't say I'm against looting Target. <laughs> Honestly, they, they I think you're in agreement with, and that's and actually the store, the Target, and and by the way, I have a lot of friends who work at Target. We're at Target headquarters, so if you're a black professional in Minneapolis, I'm sure you have some Kim as well. Um, if you're a black professional in Minneapolis, you probably know executives who, in fact, the CEO lives a block from my house. Um, that is an, a, a stated fact. Um, <laughs> um, but on the other side of that, like I wonder, you know, we always look at problems so black and white, and I wonder if. If Target had thought about this, you know, that the day knowing that the protests were, that we were going to be having peaceful protests, what if they had brought in um, toilets and actually stocked them in the parking lot and had lots of water and, you know, cool paper, like, what if they had actually shown up in their red shirts and said, we are standing in solidarity with George Floyd, this is our hometown, not on our watch. Um, you know, that might have also played out very differently. And um, I wasn't aware of the fact that the uptown and I'm, I, I, and uh, that, that some of the stores and targets and, and in particularly black neighborhoods are loss prevention strategy stores. Um, the very first ACLU case um, happened last week where a black person was actually, um, I believe it was a black person, but they were arrested due with facial recognition, um, but it turned out they hadn't been anywhere near the store and hadn't shoplisted, but it had mistaken them. And that, you know, I don't know if you're a brown person, I, I talk about this a lot lately. I don't know if you know this, Andrew, but 
um, with certain kinds of technology that we build, we think it's biasless, but it has a bias. So for instance, the technology that starts water fountains, you know, like by sensor are basically reflection of light. And um, they didn't test them on black and brown people first. So black and brown people have to work extra hard to get them activated um, because they're not designed to actually read brown and black skin. But they didn't have any black or brown people on the team to say maybe we should be using a different standard than bouncing light off of skin, right? Like, so it was a group of white people. And so every time I go to the bathroom in an airport, I have to find the right place on my skin that's reflective enough to make the water fountain, you know, go. You know, and it, it, it seems like, wait, what? Like, How's that even possible? Like, you know, so there's a million ways. Um, and there's this narrative out there. I certainly heard it and I didn't experience it. And I, I don't know if I brought this up before. I call it accepting by accepting. And that is by basically saying, oh, well, you're brilliant, Marnita, but you're not like other black. Oh, look at Kim. Kim's a good black woman, right? Like, um, and, and basically, they could sit in a room like, you know, it could be like Andrew sitting in a room and saying like, Marnita, Lauren, Kim, and Carlo are all brilliant and they're all black. That expands my worldview to know that black people are like all people. There's some that are brilliant, some that aren't like, but how often I've encountered a white person that basically said, oh, well, you're just different than other black people. And you say, well, who else you met? Oh, I met Kim and I met Carlo and you're all brilliant but the three of us are different than other black people as opposed to you just didn't it. so I, I call it about accepting black people by making us exceptions to the rule and basically holding a criminal up whatever that is in the head somebody highly dysfunctional up as the norm and then anybody that falls outside the norm it doesn't suddenly change the norm it they literally get accepted anyway what do you think of that i saw you thinking about that kim Yes, no, no, I have heard that um, most of my life. And um, one reason when Keith and I moved to Minneapolis, and it was for Keith to go to law school, but when we realized that we were staying, then he ended up standing a job here. Um, one reason we bought a house in North Minneapolis was because living at the U and watching TV, but being black, realizing that the only image of black people I saw we're not people who look like me or you or Lauren, you know, it was, it was the criminals on the news or the, um, the person that was, you know, fit some role on some TV show. And um, I remember saying when we said, okay, we're going to stay, where should we buy a house? I remember saying, let's buy a house in North Minneapolis because that's where the black people are. And I can't have my children grow up thinking that black people exist as they see on TV, uh, because that is not, we are not the exception. Um, you just need to get to know more black people, you know, <laughs> that, um, that because what you've been believed to be the rule is not true. Um, you just need to get around other black people to see that Yes. To be honest, that was my impetus behind the table to some degree. As I would talk to white people, there they'd be like, "I remember asking a hundred when we when I founded the table, 
I was constantly meeting white men and they kept saying, well, I'd hire more white people if they were all like you, Marnita. And I, and I would say like, stop, really racist, really offensive. Maybe like, but why? It's a compliment. It was like, no, you just don't know. I know it's not a compliment. And then I'm like, and if, I, and if I said it like, like the way you just said, like we're both laughing, but if I actually said it with a serious face, of course, I immediately became a meme, right? The angry, mm-hmm. the, the angry black woman who couldn't tell a joke, who couldn't take a joke, right? Like, because it's wonderful to assume that all people who look like me, including my child, you know, are criminals. Like that's an okay thing in somebody's mind. Like that, that that's actually something that, that somebody doesn't examine um, very closely. Um, and, you know, I asked a hundred white men who were all senior vice president or above, because I live in Kenwood. And as you know, in Minneapolis, Kenwood is kind of an upper middle class, Beverly Hills East kind of neighborhood. Um, and so I had like the CEO of, Target and Best Buy as neighbors and knew me and socially. And so I would ask, I asked a hundred of them over 18 months, how did they get their own job? And all of them, a hundred percent said through my personal social network. And so I had to ask them, does everybody know what my second question was? White people never get the second question, but I have a feeling you guys might. Uh Uh-oh. Do you know what the second question I asked him was? Can you hear me? Did I freeze? I'm not sure. Wanna guess? Carlo, you wanna guess what the second question was? Am I frozen? No, we can hear you. Okay, good. You're all thinking. So I asked them how they got their jobs and they all said through their personal social network. So what was my, and they were all major decision makers at corporate America. What was my second question? It was the impetus for the table. My second question was, well, if y'all got your jobs from your personal social network, how diverse is your personal social network? Mm-hmm. If you, they all were running major diversity programs, but they'd gotten hired after their diversity programs through their personal social network, and they were not expanding their personal social networks. So in other words, they were doing programs but who wants to be treated as a program? Like, do you want to be treated, like, don't you want to be lifted up for leadership, Carlo, just because you're amazing? If I said, oh, you might be an at-risk use, what would that make you feel like? I just asked you to be a part of us, and I'm hoping it makes you feel good. Um, but you didn't feel like I was, I'm hoping you don't feel like I'm pandering to you or asking you to be a part of us as a token, right? Like, I, I think we do that a lot to young Black people. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I I certainly hear that uh, a lot. A lot of I've I've certainly gotten a lot of people who are who just like to you know say oh Carlo you're so smart and then they completely forget whatever I said. Uh, I I think people should look at me for my merits and that's part of why I I didn't put my last name uh, Carlo Kim uh, because I I don't really want you to remember that it was a 14 year old boy who said that just the words that I said because uh, that's 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 what I think is important my merits. Amazing. So, so anyway, I asked them and a hundred percent. So I asked all these guys got, got their jobs from their personal social networks. And, um, out of the over hundred men I asked, two of them said, Oh, very diverse. And I have to say, um, the very diverse, um, networks, they said it was me, um, Morris Goodwin, 
who at the time was the CFO of Ameriprise, and Lydia Mallet, who was the chief diversity officer for, um, for General Mills at the time. And we all lived about six blocks from each other in Kenwood. And I was like, people, this is not diversity. Like, like, so these are the, well, I know Laisha Ward from, like, like, it was like, really, like, I, I love these people, but we all live in the same neighborhood. We're basically middle class up, like, like that was not diversity. And, and recognizing like, and so I kind of called them on it. So instead of trying to give them anti-racism training, which they seem to get defensive about, I wondered what would happen if I just introduced them to a flood of interesting black people. Um, and they could no longer deny what was reality, right? I didn't force them. And it actually worked, as you know, we're 15 years old. But now this new conversation about safer. Um, so Kim, you got rid of the contracts at schools. What are you guys talking about? What are you going to do as a result of this? Like, you know, what's the things change? Yes. So the question is, what's going to happen if an active shooter shows up at our school? Um, well, first of all, active shooters have shown up at schools where there was a cop in the school, and that didn't stop them. Um, and so I'm not quite sure where that comes from, but people associate safety with being able to stop um, an extreme, something extreme from happening, um, like a weapon being brought to school or a fight breaking out, you know, a law being broken, which doesn't happen often. Um, we are going to, so immediately in September, we will be in some type of school. We don't know what it's going to look like, but um, if we are in school full-time or part-time, there will be, people in buildings that we need to provide some type of safety for. Right now, the superintendent is looking at um, what he considers are high touch schools, um, schools that either made a number of referrals to the school resource officer or made um, 911 calls. So what does safety look like there? And it basically looks like a school resource officer in a t-shirt. Um, so secure, secure a person providing security um, without the training of an officer, without a gun. Um, but then that is just like a temporary fix because what I also realized is when we said we are canceling this contract like today and you cannot negotiate a future contract and you need to come up with a plan by August. Um, other school districts have also canceled contracts with the police department and given their superintendent a year to come up with a plan. Um, so I told him if he comes back and he says, my plan is to talk with community, to talk with students, um, to see what is needed in schools, talk to staff members, um, families, um, and give you a plan in May, I would be okay with that um, because we do need to talk to students. We, when we said, when we posted notice of the meeting, and it was a special meeting, so we posted notice on a Thursday or Friday, we said we're meeting on Tuesday. Um, our student representative in that, in those, during that weekend, developed a survey, um, put it so that students could um, access it, had almost 2,000 students fill it out, and not only did they answer that no we don't want school resource officers i think it was almost 90 percent said no cancel the contract um they also had ideas of what safety looks like for them in three and 
soon enough that he was able to report back to us on Tuesday in three days. We have the time. Now, what does that look like? You know, I've got adults saying, oh, but it's going to be hard during a pandemic, during the summer um, to get feedback. I'm saying, okay, well, we will give you more time then. Um, but we need, it needs to be inclusive of others. We don't need to just create something that looks like a school resource officer without actually hiring a Minneapolis police officer. Um, we need to listen to what, again, students say would make them feel safe in schools. So short term, it might look very similar, it might be a security person, um, just to hold space while we talk to community. Oakland um, School District, three years ago, said by 2020, we are going to get all cops out of schools. They, they said this years ago, passed a presented a resolution this month um, that they're voting on either tonight or yesterday, um, directing superintendent to cancel the contract with police officers. I think they also had school officers that you know they hired, that this district had hired. They're going to get rid of them. And they set up a plan saying, and then over the next year, you are going to meet with these people um, to develop a new school, school safety plan. This is a school district that it said three years ago, we're getting school resource out, we're getting officers out of our schools by 2020. And they didn't have a plan. And they're giving their superintendent, their district a year to come up with a plan. Um, so I think, like I said, I think we were unfair to expect the superintendent to come up with a plan by the end of the summer um, in a time when it would be difficult to communicate, to bring groups of people together to talk about what school safety looks like without police officers. Um, and so we don't know what that plan is yet, but I, I'm excited that there are a number of school districts also working on school safety plans and what does safety look like in schools without police officers. That That's but that is so exciting. I wanted to tell you one of the things at Marnita's table, and I know you've been to the table and know about the table, but one of the things that you know, 70% of our income comes from somebody who hires us. So we are already in ISD 192, 191. Mm -hmm. Lauren, Burnsville, we are in 191. We are in Car Eastern Carver County, so we're in Carver School Districts. We've been in the four school districts in Northern um, Suburban Ramsey County. Um, actually, I think the only school district that has not hired us ever is Minneapolis. Often you don't get hired in your own school district. Like uh, nobody, it's, it's like we don't exist. We, we get hired now like in Kansas City and Atlanta and stuff, but like we're a homegrown team, partially grown because of the racial issues in the community, right? Like I had to build this thing here. Um, but I wanted to let you know, and we'll be reaching out like offline with you, but uh, Marnita's Table is actually raising the money to be able to be the space that helps to have that conversation because okay. we actually believe um, that what we're doing here is going to be groundbreaking. And I'm just going to throw this up on the screen. Um, you may never have seen this, but uh, we, we did a, a conversation series last year with, or about four years ago. And I know you know Marika Fepperkorn, right? Yes. yes. Yep. So four years ago, we did the conversations um, in Ramsey County and Ramsey made a joint powers board from our conversations, pulling, plucking like one thing out of it. And because people knew Marnita's table, they basically went back and, and, and Marika and others went and said, that's not what the community said they wanted. 
You know, I, and, and, and so the candy came back and said, oh, well, we need to do new listening sessions. And Marika actually went to the Star Tribune and said, Marnita's Table's listening sessions were great. They had double the amount of people that we expected. It was all the right people. That, that, uh, I saw the reports afterwards. No, they just didn't listen to the voices of the people. So in that case, um, the community came out, said what they wanted. We held space and then it got buried. Um, and we realized, but when we hand over something like that to uh, like a client, like a, they can then take it and hide it, right? They didn't want people to know it existed. And so I was just going to show you this. So it led us to create this. Um, and I think it's actually up. Now, like, I think you can actually get to it. Anyway, okay. so when we do work now, so like this, uh, Carver County, you know, has been having the White Citizens Council and a lot of racist things and in fact when we went there we weren't even sure like it was insane so we were there in february um this is what the events looked like when we were there this was when we were in person um one of the things to know about carver county it's the wealthiest healthiest and whitest county in the state of minnesota it's also where prince was just so you know that's where um, paisley park was in case you're a prince fan anybody um so this is what our events looked like there but what we wanted to do was so the community, um, so that you know the decision makers in the community couldn't take just the words and be like, oh well, that's what they said. We wanted the community to be able to online get back to everything that we had produced in the room, so you could actually see from the pictures, like who was in the room, what happened, was it really representative of the community? Um, were voices lifted up as opposed to? And so you can actually go through um, uh, and we do, everything comes out on, we do major reports so that you can use them, um, deliver them to the community. Uh, we show like every, every single thing that we go, like so we'll be wanting the school board to be a part of what we're doing mm -hmm. um, because we think this is part of a larger community plan, right? Like, it, you know, the schools are part of the community, but parents and their jobs. And so um, we think we might be able to help you all speed the process along. Um, yeah. If we start having these conversations and lifting up these voices, that you can start taking things and adopting them already. Um, and we think that you, there's funders out there and we can help speed the process up. Mm -hmm. um, we've already gotten our first $25,000 to do this. And um, we were already doing building bridges and breaking bread with um, Andrea Jenkins and the eighth ward on the 38th street bridge. And so we have our funding to do that again um, and to work in directly in the 38th street neighborhood, which is your neighborhood too, right? I know that because I met Deborah Moses at the pie shop. Did you enjoy your pie that day? Yes, yes, I did. Thank you very that much. Was the day before we all went into lockdown. Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, but I, I, so this is the quality that we're delivering, um, just so you know that, so yeah. that like so we could say like these are 10 recommendations from people under the age of 24 and their parents like right that so even though you guys are doing a plan we would love to work in like so that we knew that the voices whether we get funded whether we get hired to do it whether you want to come in as a small partner this is the kind of work we think is really important because it is actually from the community to leaders you know and, and yeah. we wanted to make sure that um, the community had a way to get back to the reports that's often a thing how many times have you been invited into a room as a black woman we want to hear your opinion and then yes. you never hear, you know and then you never hear back from them again right yeah yes 
So I want to go. I just wanted to show you that. Thank um, you. Thank you. Um, but we, this is why we did it, because we really believe that um, there's a moment happening right now. Oh, you know, there's this moment happening. And if we don't grab it, if we don't harness it, if we don't actually identify our allies like Carlo and you and start talking about things and making change really happen, um, you know, I, I just, I, I don't know if I can live it. I'm exhausted. Racism, how, how many of you just feel worn out right now? Yes. Like, I feel depleted, you know, so like, so just know that having you here is actually um, really healing. I'm hoping that this was a little healing for you guys too, to be able to lift up your voices, to have allies and friends of different ages. So our last question, I'm gonna start and I throw it to the next person and just keep going. What is one hope you have for your community? And my one hope for my community is that we get serious about this and we actually do something um, and don't just talk about it. And our white allies are actually show up um, and, and actually pay do forward what is due forward. And I'm going to throw it to Carlo. Um, one hope I have for the community. Um, I think materially, uh, the, I, I would like to uh, get uh, Councilwoman Lorraine Lundquist elected. Um, that's my district. Uh, she's going against John Lee, so go out to the polls, please, people, uh, which is a wider scale goal I have for not just my community, but the entire nation. Uh, in the 2016 elections, only about one third of the entire population voted. Uh, that is disgusting. How can that possibly be the case? We, this, is, this is our nation, and uh, the, the one way that you have to, that, will, that has been guaranteed throughout history, and it's gone through several revisions, and it used to be limited to certain people, and it still is limited to certain people. But the one way that you will always know you can express your opinions on politics and your ideology is to vote. So please, people, vote in your local elections, in your state elections, in your national elections. Thank you. That's wonderful. Now throw it to the next person. Lauren. Glad you threw it to me because I was thinking about what you were saying. Um, and there are a lot of young people who are like, oh, well, it's not real anyways. And I'm like, but if it is, if there's that sliver of, of a possibility that it is real, like it's just one it's 15 minutes of your day, you know? It's just one small thing you can do. So yes, totally agree with you. Um, and then I've been thinking that my hope for the community is that whatever we're building is not meant to be stagnant, that it is meant to shift and change and be responsive to the needs um, as, they, as they occur. I feel like our, the way that our society looks and how we operate is going to continue to change very, very rapidly. So whatever we put in place, whether it's policies or people, um, that, that the focus is, is creating something that is moldable and shiftable depending on where our society goes. Um, and I'll pass it to Kim. Thank you. I'm going to follow up on what's my hope for the community. I'm going to follow up on something Carlos said that yes, vote. One third is ridiculous. 
Um, so I want them, I want my community to find their voice through voting yes, um, and then holding um, their elected officials accountable for what it is they want to see in their community. Um, so that's my hope. I'm gonna throw it to Andrew. Yes, thank you, Kim. And thank you for what you've shared with um, regarding the school board. I think how we can continue to create value is be confident in sharing our opinion to move the needle. Um, like you mentioned, the school board's listening and they're actively seeking out the opinions and uh, perspectives of others. So to continue to be um, active and, um, and, and, and share what you think could be a solution because this is such a pivotal moment where there is not necessarily an answer. You're making enormous change, great change, and uh, it's gonna take everyone to uh, accomplish it. Thank you. I just have to say, Thank you so much to Carlo and Kim um, for being guests. Kim Ellison, president of the Minneapolis School Board. Thank you for what you do for the city of Minneapolis. Thank you for being a leader. Um, I have to say, I remember sitting, I remember encountering you in marches against the Iraq war. I remember encountering you. Like, I, I think I, my first experience was sitting with you on the Capitol steps maybe I don't, we have encountered each other at many a protest over the years um and uh I, I think finally one day we were sitting on the steps together and it was like should we get together one day because we've been circling each other for years and people have been saying you know kim and marnita you should get together so yes. thank you so much in interest yes we'd love to have you back from time to time on the podcast it's going to be on air um up on spotify and uh iTunes and other things as of next week. It's always drops on Thursday morning. It was an honor to have you here, Kim. Carlo, love you. Wow. You blew our minds. We want you back. Um, I'm hiring you. I'm texting with your mom. Like, she's like, he has a summer program. I'm like, good. We'll, we'll arrange our schedule so Carlo can be with us. Um, we adore you. Uh, thank you so much. It was an honor to have you. Thank you for having me. We loved it. Did you learn anything? Did you have fun? Was that fun for you? Yay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yay. I'm glad. Because you know what? You're a very serious young man, but you know what? You're also 14 and it's okay to have fun too. You know, that's one of the pieces I think about the table is that we get silly sometimes. And so there'll be days, hopefully not too far in the future where we get to also be silly um, and not just talk about, you know, fighting for our rights. I had a moment once Lauren was with me. I know I'm signing off the show, but that's the power of podcasts. We're not broadcasting so I can go longer. But Lauren and I were speaking one night and we were telling a story that happened in Scott County, which is one of our, uh, it was one of the white flight counties of Minneapolis where when black people moved into the city, white people moved further west. And um, we had had an Izzy, an Izzy, intentional social interaction, and we were sitting there and a county commissioner who was kind of opposed to the work. Um, we were sitting with a, 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 the city, the mayor, county commissioner, school board, everybody. And um, the county commissioner said, well, so what? We had dinner. What happens? Like, what, what happens as a result of this? And one of the city planners said, well, the conversation was about health and welfare. And a question came up about what, you know, what do you or your family do to stay healthy? And all the black and brown people said that they played soccer, that their kids played soccer. 
And apparently at a number of the tables, 140 people were in this room, and a number of the tables, it came up that um, in Scott County, because the person who controls the lights at the park is a white dad who has kids in hockey, that in the middle of, of October, they shut the lights off at all the um, soccer fields and started turning them on at the hockey rinks. But kids being kids, they were still going out, but they didn't have lights, so they were playing soccer on, in, on ice and they were falling and they were hurting themselves and they were breaking their legs, which was actually not good fiscal policy either to have you know kids breaking their legs on public policy. And we met with them a week after that conversation came up and the lights were already back on at the soccer fields. Um, and I was mentioning this to a group of white people, and this was actually after Michael Brown and um, Ferguson. And Lauren and I were standing there, and I, I said, you know, I don't, it's exhausting to have to always protest for my basic rights. Like, it'd be nice if they just knew that black and brown kids were playing soccer and the lights were on, right? Like, we didn't have to have kids break their legs before somebody knew that about us. Um, and that's another fight that I don't have to have. I don't have to make that fight. And uh, this white woman had been protesting and she was like, but I was laying on the freeway and I was feeling my breath. And it was like, you know, my oppression really shouldn't be your, um, the sleepaway camp you go to to feel good about yourself, right? Like, like that's my everyday life. Um, it's not like I did it one Saturday, I did, you know, equality tourism, right? And so, um, you know, I, we're hoping for a day, Carlo, when when you don't have to protest for your rights anymore. Um, when Kim and I don't have to uh, protest for our rights or Lauren doesn't, and, and we don't have to say, Andrew, do you wanna be an ally of ours? Are you gonna be nice? Or are you gonna sell us down the river? Which actually has a very specific meaning, meaning that we could be sold away from our families. It has been an honor to have you. Wave goodbye, say goodbye one more time. Kim, say goodbye. And Carlo, just one last time. Want to hear your voice one last time into the world here on the podcast? It's Carlo. Hey. Hey. And Lauren and Andrew, it's been an honor. Thank you for joining us at West. It's our seventh. And Andrew says we don't normally get to seven. 90% um, of podcasts do not get to seven. And so this is our weather together. It's our seventh. Thank you so much. We will have, we'll send you all um, the, the link so you can listen to it. It was an honor to have you. Thank you for our Facebook Live audience. It was an honor to have you. Um, yay. One for all. One for all. It's all, it's all for one. Let's start a union. Calling every human. It's one for all and all for one. Let's live in unison. It's drastic time for sure. We need an antidote and a cure. Cause do you really think Muhammad got a problem with Jehovah? We don't want war. Imagine if every prophet was alive. And current days amongst you and I. You think they would view life like you and I do? Or would they sit and contemplate on why do we live 
this way, how can behave this way? We still live in primitive today, cause a piece of the destination in war can't be the way. There's no way, so people just be a woman, be a man, realize that you can change the world by changing yourself, and understand that we all just the same. So when I count of three, let's change. for all and all for 